What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Tuesday, February 19th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Barry Lamb of Slate's philosophy podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, sitting in for Mike Pesca. Bernie Sanders has officially entered the race for 2020. That makes three candidates on my count who are running on a platform of fighting wealth inequality. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. This issue isn't going away. In the primary debates this summer, these three, and yes, I'm counting Yang, are going to push everyone else to the left on just how much we should be taxing America's billionaires. And if Democrats win it all in 2020, I'll bet the era of Clinton-Obama centrism on taxes is over. As a result, billionaires are acting like they're the most persecuted minority in the country right now. Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg look prepared to run for president explicitly to prevent the progressive wing of the Democratic Party from taking a sliver more of billionaire money. Here's Schultz telling CNN that a 70% marginal tax rate, the kind suggested by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, would doom the Democrats. If the Democrats are proposing anything close to a 70% level of income tax, how many core Democrats are going to be supportive of a move towards socialism? Not very many. President Trump will get reelected. In reality, a majority of even conservatives support raising taxes on the highest earners. And that's according to a Fox News survey. But the woke billionaires of Davos couldn't contain their disdain for AOC's proposal either. Or at least Michael Dell couldn't. No, I'm I'm not supportive of that. Well, Keith... And I don't think it would help the growth of the U.S. economy. Oh, that's interesting. And can you say a little bit more about why? Why you don't think it would... Well, name a country where that's worked, ever. Even benevolent billionaires Melinda and Bill Gates felt the need to defend the good of billionaires on Stephen Colbert's Late Show after conceding that they needed to be taxed more. You need to have a fair tax system that taxes the wealthy more than lower middle income, and you need to have a vibrant philanthropy sector. Philanthropy can never make up for taxes, but it is that catalytic wedge where we can try things, we can do innovations that you wouldn't want your government to do with tax dollars, but then it has to be government that scales up things like health or education. But AOC's proposal is positively quaint compared to the ideas we've seen in recent weeks. Elizabeth Warren has offered a tax on ultra-rich Americans' wealth instead of their income. If you don't know the difference, income is the money you earn. Wealth is the money and assets you already have. Here, by the way, is Schultz's reaction to the words wealth tax. Elizabeth Warren's proposal is a wealth tax. Oh, God. Elizabeth Warren's plan is to tax a family's wealth above $50 million at 2% a year, with an extra 1% on wealth over a billion dollars. Bernie Sanders has a plan to raise the marginal inheritance tax on billionaires to 77%. And that makes sense. By and large, billionaires don't get most of their money from income. They get it from inheritance and returns on wealth. The New York Times just put out an analysis of Warren's plan, claiming that it might be illegal. They write that objections to wealth taxes boil down to a basic philosophical stance that money you've already earned and paid taxes on shouldn't be taxed again. This double taxation is supposed to be the worst injustice you could inflict on a billionaire. And then there's the eternal refrain that taxes on billionaires kill jobs. 
But the more I look at Elizabeth Warren's proposal, the more I like it. In fact, why don't we get rid of income taxes for everyone and have wealth taxes instead? Beyond funding the government, the purpose of taxation is often to disincentivize the things you're taxing. It's good for the economy for people to make money. It's good for the economy for people to spend it. But it's horrible for people to make lots of money, more than they could ever spend, and then just sit on it. So if some billionaire makes $100 million a year and blows it all on luxury goods, that billionaire pays no taxes. I think that's fair. All of that money is going back into the economy and promoting growth. But billionaires don't spend much of their money at all. They often sit on their wealth, passing it down to their kids, creating jobs or wealth for no one else. That's like extracting value from labor and dumping it into the ocean. Another thing we could do is measure the amount of jobs billionaires create through their spending and then tax all the money that isn't going towards creating jobs. It's not hard to do. We measure job creation with companies all the time. We can do the same with billionaires. It's a simple Pigovian calculation. Don't tax earnings. Don't tax spending. Don't tax actual job creation. Tax hoarding. I think economic research has been pretty decisive about what spurs economic growth. And it isn't billionaires keeping their money in coffers. That's true in business, it's true of education, it's even true in philanthropy. Billionaires claim to love philanthropy. They even set up huge charitable foundations that spend next to nothing so they can pile up more money tax-free. Here's another plan for you. Measure how much good a billionaire's pet charity does and tax the money that isn't doing any good. I love the idea. Take billionaires at their word about all the good their billions are supposed to be doing for the job market and charities and then tax the hell out of the money that doesn't do any of that. What's their argument then? On the show today, I spiel about algorithms and criminal justice. Are they racist? Are they biased? The answer is yes, but that's not what you should be worried about. But first, unless Trump strikes a deal with China's top brass in the next few weeks, tariffs are going up. But where could the president's confrontational style lead us? And are Democrats any more likely to try cooperating with China instead of facing off against it. I talked to Kaiser Guo, editor-at-large of SubChina and co-host of the Seneca podcast about this and more. That's next. I'm here with Kaiser Guo, co-host of the Seneca podcast and editor-at-large at SubChina, the best deep-dive sources today on China and China-U.S. relations. All right, Kaiser, well, you've been an observer, reporter, resident of China for a long time. How is this moment in 2019, two years into the Trump administration, importantly different to you from previous moments? Well, I mean, it's it's a complete sea change. I think that that was driven home in October, just before the midterm elections, when Vice President Pence gave this speech at the Hudson Institute, a conservative institution in, in D.C., where he really ramped up the idea that the relationship is going to be predicated not on cooperation anymore, but on competition. But what's different now, I think, is there's a kind of a bipartisan consensus that we ought to be tougher on China. I mean, right now you see really conservative Republicans in bed with very liberal uh, members of the Democratic Party. Uh, and they're quite unified, at least in D.C., on a lot of these China-related issues. They might have different priorities. The Democrats still are much more concerned, for example, with human rights issues. 
where the Republicans now, of course, you know, especially now during the Trump administration, for them it's really all about trade and especially – and this is where I think there's a lot of overlap on technology. Uh, And there was this this real contempt for China as this merely imitative country where, yeah, there there was no real honest-to-God creativity. It's, it's, It's nonsense, of course. But I would say one thing that that for sure is that China does have the whole supply chain. They're sitting on top of it in a city like Shenzhen, where most of and it's far southern China. It's right across the border from Hong Kong. That's where most of our electronics are made. So the so the fear is coming from the fact that there is innovation and not that they're like super innovative uh, or anything like that. It's just the fact that its existence is troubling people in the U.S. The main things. Well, there's there's a whole bunch of convergent narratives. Well. If you if you read the papers these days and you look at what's being written about China, all the stuff about techno-authoritarianism, you see all these uh, stories about the, the so-called social credit system. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> right, which, you know, I think a lot of them are, are, are very, very flawed and very exaggerated, talking about some plans that are very much not in place. You, you see a lot of stories about Chinese uh, use of AI, you know, these Orwellian uses of facial recognition and so forth. And at the same time, there's, you know, real anxiety about companies like Huawei, which has been very much in the news recently, as probably most of the listeners know, their CFO was detained in Canada, arrested. She's out on bail now, but she's got an extradition request out from the U.S. They, you know, the U.S. clearly wants to see this company, Huawei, on its knees, if not absolutely, you know, abjectly prostrate. And they're, you know, trying to exclude them from 5G networks. Now, 5G networks which are rolling out, already beginning to roll out, this is going to be one of the defining technologies of, of the near future. And, uh, you know, a lot of Americans, for security reasons, for competitive reasons, are very, very anxious about China's role in this. How much of this focus on Huawei is a projection, and how much of it is reality? You know, it's really hard to say. I mean, as, as people who study this will often remind you, it's very hard to prove a negative. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of context here that you need to, to look at. You know, people have been worried about China being able to install backdoors in some of its technologies for for, for quite a while. Uh, Now that Huawei is going to be, you know, really in the heart of a lot of these uh, 5G networks, they're worried about this sort of thing. And and for all of Huawei's efforts to show them that they're not to to allow people to take apart their gear and and prove that there are no backdoors to, you know, pour through the source code, they're they're allowing GCHQ in, in the UK to do this. There's this belief that still Huawei sits like atop this red button they can push and turn off the networks in the event of, you know, a war. And yeah, perhaps that's, that, that's, that's true. Does China restrict American companies from playing in its yard? Absolutely. They, I mean, they do this by having data localization requirements, for example. Um, all sorts of things that are, are tied to concerns about American backdoors. The difference is that they can point to actual instances of American backdoors, you know, uh, most notably in the revelations of a certain Mr. Edward Snowden in 2013. They know that the, the, the NSA has gotten directly involved in using American technology companies to spy. So um, yeah, we, we, forget, we forget about this context sometimes when we think about Huawei. Right. All of these concerns are coalescing around tech and particular tech companies, but you think it's just it's an instance of this more generalized anxiety, right? Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, look, the United States has never really had to deal with a near-peer competitor. 
look, we had the, the Soviet Union, sure, but what did we really buy from the USSR besides Stolichnaya, right? Or we, we'd, we'd, yeah, we'd get tickets to see the Bolshoi and see Barishnikov dance. But that, that we weren't, you know, enamored with Soviet culture. ever. Nobody in the world was. They exported a lot of military hardware and vodka, maybe some caviar too. There are areas where America is going to have to recognize that it won't be able to extend total hegemony. And I think the Western Pacific is one of those areas. We, we really need to uh, understand that there are other important economic players that have their own core vital strategic, geostrategic interests. And when you consider the massive percentage of China's own trade goods that flow through a very, very narrow pinch point like the Strait of Malacca, uh, you understand why China desires to extend military to project power out into the South China Sea, why it wants in its own sort of sphere of influence. Now, you can't talk directly about this sort of thing without being called an appeaser. And I'm the first person to tell you that the presence of a strong American military in the Western Pacific for all these decades since the Second World War has been one of the, the great sources of stability in the region. And China probably more than any other country in the region, has actually benefited from it. You'll hear Chinese people say the same thing. Really? Yeah. Okay. But is, is it still necessary now that there is another country, another actor capable of providing those sorts of public goods, of keeping you know, the pirates out of the Straits of Malacca? That's a good question. When you are trying to be clear-eyed about this, how much do you see as arising from legitimate concerns concerning international competition, how much do you see is just basic human xenophobia? <laughs> right? well, I mean, first of all, let's, let's be fair. There's xenophobia on both sides. I mean, China's Oh, absolutely. The Chinese are as xenophobic as it gets, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, it, you know, maybe they have more of an excuse having been isolated for longer. Less and less of one is they're more exposed to the world. And I certainly wouldn't, I don't countenance it, but... Uh, I really worry when we have people like our FBI director, Christopher Wray, talking about China presenting a whole-of-society threat that requires a whole-of-society response. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but these are very close to his exact words. He is is signaling that you know Chinese people in the United States, whether they are STEM graduate students in research labs, uh, Chinese ethnic Chinese scientists working, are, are to be viewed with suspicion. It's, it's becoming quite a pervasive problem where we're, we're starting to see people who look like you, Barry, or, or like me, uh, targeted because of this, our, our, our ethnicity. That is a real danger. Now, does China seek to influence uh, the politics in the United States? Yes, to some extent they do. Let's, let's be very careful about what, what this is, though. This is almost entirely defensive, right? This is, they are trying to change the American narrative on China to basically deflect or dilute criticism of China. This is something that all countries do. It's called public diplomacy. People do this. I mean, they, and they use state-run media. They use networks of influencers to try to do this. It's not nice. It's not good. But is it fair play? Well, kind of. We do it, and we do it much better. Now, how does China fare in this? They, they're terrible, <laughs> let's be honest. I mean, Chinese efforts at so-called influence are clumsy, ham-fisted. They're seen from a mile away. It's so, it's so inelegant that, I mean, to imagine that it could be successful is just 
That's 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 funny. Uh, <laughs> How, how is the American response to China? They differ from, say, its response to Russia. Yeah, th- these are completely different. Uh, China, as I've, I've, I've tried to, to argue, they're mainly defensive. They want to, like I said, change the narrative on what people are saying about the United States. They are not pitting Americans against each other using hot-button issues of race or abortion or, or, or you know, gay rights or anything like that, the way that, that, that the Russians in all the available evidence seem to have done. They're not trying to, you know, pull the sort of epistemological rug out from under us and make us question, you know, is there truth, right? Is it not in their interest to do that or is it just not part of the, like, long-term game or anything like that? No, it's, 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 it's not something that they're interested in doing. First of all, you know, look, it's, it's, it's quite different. In Russia, all these kind of uber-nationalists in Russia, they have embraced this whole idea of you know, muddying the, the epistemological waters of just trying to, you know, it's, it's almost a kind of perverse postmodernism in Russia. You don't Not, want people to believe anything. Right, right. Okay. So that, you know, they can, they will believe anything, right? So in China, instead, they cling to one very specific version of truth. There's no, I mean, the, the worst thing you can say about somebody is that there's a, they're a historical nihilist, right? They, there's one definitive version of truth. And I mean, as... I, I find that, you know, horrible also, but I'm not sure I'd rather live in a place with no, doesn't subscribe to any notion of truth. One of the themes of responses to Trump's China policy is that, you know, things aren't zero sum in the economic sphere, right? You can have economic growth in China that's not at the cost of whatever Trump thinks the costs are in the U.S. Some of these so things... So sensible people believe Yeah, that. that's right. But some things are zero-sum in a certain sense, like human rights, right? If the liberal left is concerned with human rights or opening up with the press or situation in Xinjiang, isn't that zero-sum there, isn't it? Well, I, I don't think of it as zero-sum. I okay. think that what we what need to do is think about what actually works. Uh, there's this marvelous line from Obama's uh, 2009 Oslo uh, Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech where he, he talks about the uh, He says... Well, I know that engagement with repressive regimes lacks the satisfying purity of of indignation. indignation. And so there there are different approaches. You can be, you know, you can shake your fist and be indignant. And sometimes that's that, you know, you need to do that. You need that moral clarity. There are issues in China right now that demand absolute moral clarity. For example, the internment of hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million Uyghurs in what have to be called concentration camps. That I don't, there's no gray there, Right. But what there is is uh, the question of what will actually produce the changes that we desire. Is it enough to browbeat? Is it enough to try to mobilize? What I'm curious to know is what is the strategy, what are the tactics that will produce the, the results that we all agree are desirable? That is getting these people out of these camps, getting China to understand what a mistake this has been. Now, and just shaking your fist, tweeting about it, or making some speech, politician making some speech, probably not going to do anything. Well, I don't think it'll do nothing. I think that it's important to, to raise consciousness. Okay. And, and so, yeah, sometimes shaking the fist and tweeting and being very, very angry and vocal about it is the right thing. I don't know. I don't have the answer there, but I'm sure that it goes beyond that. I'm sure that you know we do need to rely on our professional core of diplomats, that we do need... We have a lot of, of, of tools that we can use, and you know, just stridency and anger is insufficient of itself. What do you think is the most important thing that will have to happen post-Trump, 
right? So Trump's going to be gone eventually. <laughs> I mean, like, it could be two years. It could be whatever. Um, Six months. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then we come back, and you know, he started this trade war. What, wherever the negotiations are going to go in the next month or so, um, what do you think is the most important thing that has to happen in the next administration? Well, I think we need to really clear our heads. Forty years ago this year, the U.S. normalized its relationship with China, and there have been bumps. But by and large, yeah, the relationship had had some periods of, of quite intense cooperation. But yeah, in the last couple of years, we've seen a real precipitous shift in the way the U.S. is treating China. And, you know, I mean, in the large part in response to a deeply illiberal turn that China has taken itself. I don't pretend that I have all the answers to these things right now. But what I am absolutely certain of are a few things. That, for example, the most urgent issues that this world faces right now will not get solved without cooperation by both China and the United States. These are things like climate change, right? We cannot have the world's two largest carbon emitters simply not talking to each other on these issues. You know, we're talking about uh, weaning ourselves off of Chinese supply chains and re- what, reduplicating that all ourselves. That, that is, in, it's insane if we think that we can do that. We should not ramp up with this massive new arms buildup, which would be the inevitable result of taking a more hawkish policy toward China because that is is going to put a whole fuck ton of carbon into the air. This is something that I lose a lot of sleep over because, well, I, I'm somebody who's divided his life very much between the United States and China. I'm married to a Chinese woman. Uh, my kids are perfectly bicultural. I aspire to be myself. And yeah, mom and dad are fighting right now. The spiel. Newsflash. We live in divisive times. But against all odds, one issue under the Trump administration has gotten bipartisan support. Criminal justice reform. America throws its citizens into jail too often and for too long, all at taxpayer expense. In fact, one-fifth of those incarcerated haven't been to trial and haven't pled to anything. A fifth. All of them are presumed innocent, of course. But often they're there because they don't have the cash to bail themselves out. Mostly it's because some judge took a look at the person and decided it'd be better to lock them up so he or she could squeeze a plea deal out of them. You don't have to be a legal expert to think this is unfair. So that's been one front for reform by both Republicans and Democrats. And one of the tools they're promoting is the kind you've probably read about more in the context of your Facebook timeline. Algorithms. Here's the idea. Let's have computers take information about an individual's background and tell us how likely they are to commit another crime. If they're low risk, release them and expect them to show up for their court date. If they're high risk, keep them in jail until their day in court. You're protecting the public and you're not basing detainment on whether a suspect is cash-strapped or not. You're also taking the decision out of the hands of judges, who can range from fair to asshole. Algorithms seem to give progressives what they want equal treatment under the law, and treatment based on data, not human bias. Now, there's a lot of very legitimate concerns about these things, and there also is a lot of hype. Let's talk about the hype. Fears of computers taking over and controlling our lives are hype. So are progressive dreams about overcoming the biases of human decision-making. In almost all of the municipalities that use these things extensively, 
Los Angeles, as well as many in Kentucky and Florida, judges still have a lot of discretion. They can turn to the algorithm for advice or disregard it completely. There's also nothing particularly flashy about most of these things, even if the word algorithm sounds techy. They're essentially questionnaires that someone fills out with information about an offender, and then some calculations are made. You don't need a computer to do the calculation, it just saves time. No one is worried about these kinds of things when they're used to assess your risk of colon cancer or your risk of being charged for tax evasion. In fact, one experiment showed that if you just give hundreds of volunteers a suspect's short biography and criminal history, and you have them predict whether they're likely to commit another crime within six months, people perform just as well as algorithms. That either speaks pretty well of people or not very well of the algorithm. But either way, the fact that these things are computerized shouldn't scare us off. The more legitimate concerns are about hidden bias and racism. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez complained about this a few weeks ago, bashing algorithms in an interview that got quite a bit of attention. It's FaceTime. They always have these racial inequities that get translated because algorithms are still made by human beings. Right. And those algorithms are still pegged to those two basic human assumptions. Right. They're just automated. Mm-hmm. And automated assumptions, it's like you're autom- if you don't fix the bias, then you're automating the bias. Mm. And that gets even more dangerous. And it's true that any algorithm being asked to describe the future based on past and current data is going to carry all the racial disparities that currently exist. If black communities are policed more than white communities, or arrest rates are higher for the average black offender who is released than white offenders, the algorithm is going to reflect that. If not finishing high school or being homeless is positively correlated with crime, then the algorithm gives these characteristics weight, without concern for whether people are responsible for these things, as opposed to living in a tough set of social circumstances. In other words, if you put a pristine algorithm into a racist world, it's going to generate racist outcomes. But, even if you had a perfect algorithm, is it right to use it? Think about what that would mean if we used one during a murder trial. You're presented with all this data. The defendant is a male. The victim was female. The defendant is the spouse. The defendant didn't finish high school and is an addict. He's also been arrested before for domestic violence. You've just ticked off just about every box that makes it upwards of 90% likely that the defendant is the murderer. Should that be enough to convict? For now, at least, this kind of argument by algorithm isn't even admissible in court. You can't argue or suggest that a defendant is guilty because they fit a certain profile of people who tend to be guilty. In fact, it's quite the opposite you're asked as a juror to disregard all of this information and presume the defendant innocent, and then use real evidence to reach your verdict. So yeah, using algorithms to inform a trial feels pretty dicey, ethically speaking. But remember how I said they were used before trials to determine who should get bail and who shouldn't? It turns out these algorithms are also used after trials to determine how long someone's sentence should be. This is a contradiction. And it's the real problem with these algorithms. How can algorithms be legitimate and consistent for certain steps in the judicial process, but not others? I think they have to be deemed illegitimate everywhere. Jail is punishment. Prison is punishment. Let's not pretend otherwise. 
And it's just fundamentally immoral to punish someone based on the fact that other people just like them in the past had run-ins with the law, guilty or not. It doesn't matter whether you do this in a trial or outside of a trial. Punishment is just when it fits what someone has already done, not what you reckon someone might do in the future. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. If you want to learn more about algorithms and criminal justice, check out my own Slate podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. In the first two episodes of our new season, we go deep on the issue of algorithms. I'm Barry Lamb, filling in for Mike Pesca. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening. All right, Barry Lamb is talking, trying to be very enthusiastic because his personality is the opposite of Mike Pesca. <laughs>